and he was in special education for four years, but he was not progressing. And I was getting really frustrated and I didn't understand. And, you know, they would say things like, don't worry, mom, you know, they grow out of this by middle school. It hit me and my husband simultaneously like a bolt of lightning. I mean, it was an epiphany and we looked at each other and went, oh my God, he has dyslexia. I'm Nicole Holcomb, attorney by day and podcaster by night, a former educator, school counselor, and administrator, and mom to a nine-year-old daughter with dyslexia, who loves all things Harry Potter, Minecraft, and science. A few years ago, she was identified with dyslexia and our lives seemed to turn upside down for a while, quite literally. I created the Dyslexia Mom Life podcast to help you navigate the upside down journey of dyslexia. You got this. If you're wanting to thrive as a mom in this dyslexia journey, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. You are listening to the Dyslexia Mom Life podcast, episode 23. Today, I'm going to be having a conversation with Marianne Young, and I'm so excited to introduce you to Marianne. She's a wife and a mother of three and a special education advocate, and she really found her calling as an advocate, working with students with disabilities and differences through working through her youngest child's learning differences and the challenges that she faced while navigating the educational system on his behalf. She's been advocating for families and children for many years, but she officially opened Exceptional Advocacy Services in 2017. Mary Ann believes that every child has the capacity to learn and that their gifts can be developed. Currently, she works full-time as a special education advocate in 15 different counties across Georgia and Alabama. Mary Ann is also a board member for the Autism Hope Center and Access to Independence. She's also an appointee to the Region 6 Advisory Council for the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities. And she's a proud member of the Council of Parent Attorneys and Advocates. And if that's not enough, she is also an author of Raising Exceptional Children, A Guide to Understanding Learning Differences and Empowering Your Child. And that's what our conversation is going to be about today. We're going to dig into her book. She's going to give us a lot of great advice and take us on this journey of dyslexia and how to empower our children. Before we get started, I have something special for our listeners today. I've partnered with Mary Ann, and we are going to offer four free copies of her book this week. So just for the listeners of this podcast. So at the end of the podcast, I'm going to provide you all the entry details. So be sure to listen to the end of the podcast to find out how you can grab a free copy of Mary Ann's book. You're going to want to get a copy after you listen to this conversation. So enjoy our talk and I will see you at the end of the conversation. All right. I am so excited to welcome to the show Marianne Young. I have been following her here for a a bit, and I'm just really excited to have her on the show today to share so much information with you today. And you'll, you know, one of the pieces that I really love about Marianne's work is that she's actually Uh, captured some of it anyway, I'm sure it's not everything, but captured it into a book called Raising Exceptional Children, which is a guide to understanding learning differences and empowering your child. And I have to say, once I started reading the book, I couldn't put it down. It's it's absolutely great and amazing. So uh, Marianne, thank you so much for writing the book and thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And and I'm so glad you like the book. I was, um, it's very stressful, actually, releasing your work 
to the world to be critiqued, you know, it it can be a little nerve wracking and and writing is not my favorite thing. So, but I really wanted to help people. And, um, and I think that was kind of the most direct route for one person to help many, you know? Right. Absolutely. Well, before we get started, I do want to dig into the book a little bit today and have, you know, obviously some deeper conversation about the book today. But I'd love to start off, you know, we are recording this during Dyslexia Awareness Month, and I would love for you to share, you know, your journey and and how you kind of got into this work. Sure. So I have three children and all of them are um, gifted. And then the younger two have both had IEPs. My middle one, when he was younger, he had an IEP. Then middle school went to a 504 and now he's he's off everything and doing very well. But my youngest was a much different story. He had significant deficits and he was identified very early. So in kindergarten, his teacher would kind of pull me to the side and go, you know, I'm really worried about him. And he would, he would tell me little bits of information, but he kind of had to whisper it to me. You know, it was very, it was very odd to me, you know, like he was telling me some sort of secret, right? But we, we went through the SST process and, you know, I had only done maybe five minutes of Googling, but I had a, a brief understanding of how the process should occur. And when we came to the end of it, you know, they looked at me and said, well, you know, he's clearly struggling and needs help, but you, we cannot proceed with the special education process unless he has an evaluation and we cannot evaluate him. Of course, I knew just from my brief Googling that that was incorrect, but I had three children in the school. I was on the PTA and I really didn't want to rock any boats. So I went out and spent, you know, $1,800 of money that I really didn't have and um, got him evaluated. And he was initially identified with uh, ADHD and Asperger's, which of course falls under the autism spectrum now. And he was in special education for four years, but he was not progressing in his reading. He actually could not recognize all the letters of his own name, despite four years of special education services. And I was getting really frustrated and I didn't understand. And his teachers were wonderful and they loved him and they loved me. And, you know, they would say things like, don't worry, mom, you know, they grow out of this by middle school. And, and I, I was like, something else has to be going on. You know, this, this just isn't, isn't making sense. And they don't worry. We teach all kids with special needs. So it, it doesn't matter. He's fine. You know, and I'm going, yeah, yeah, it does matter. I mean, you know, I didn't know anything really, but I know that, you know, accurately defining the problem is a vast majority of, of solving you know, finding the solution. But I'm like, you don't teach blind children the same way you teach deaf children. So it's got to matter. But they really didn't feel that way. So um, after some time, really, I I, it hit me and my husband simultaneously like a bolt of lightning. I mean, it was an epiphany. He was at the table trying to sound out the word of. He had his finger under the O, but he was making the sound. And we looked at each other and went, oh, my God, he has dyslexia. It's just like that, you know. And so then I started pursuing the school to try and get a dyslexia evaluation. And in those meetings, they would say, you know, well, you know, 
I'm not sure what you want us to do. And I'm like, I want you to do and test them for dyslexia. And they'd say, well, we can't test for dyslexia. And I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? You know, I thought that if a parent or a teacher suspected a disability, you had to evaluate. And they're like, oh, Miss Young, it can't be a feeling. It has to be backed by data. So I'd leave the meeting very defeated. You know, well, what am I supposed to do? They collect the data. You know, how, how am I supposed to produce data? And, and, and ultimately, so it was this kind of cat and mouse game where I would formulate a plan and go to a meeting and I'm going to get it done. And then I would leave very defeated because they would talk me in circles. And so eventually, um, you know, I did some more reading and then I ended up writing a letter and I looked up all the various tests that people can use to help identified dyslexia. And so I, I wrote a letter that essentially said, I want you to do this test and or this test and or any and all available equivalents. Because I kind of knew at that point, if I would have asked, say, for the Pfeiffer, they would have said, well, we don't have the Pfeiffer. They wouldn't say, we don't have the Pfeiffer, but we have the KTEA, right? So I had to make it ironclad. And that worked. They did evaluate him. They were scoring the test. It took them essentially all year. They were scoring the test in the meeting, and it was the day before the last day of school. And when she was all done, she looked at me and she said, okay, it's consistent with what's commonly referred to as dyslexia. And then we were sent home for the summer for three months. And I was beside myself. I mean, I was literally like, I couldn't believe that they just sent us home with like no information, no resources, no, you know, just, hey, your kid has a a reading disability. He's in, you know, ending third grade, still still can't recognize his letters. You know, I'm going, is he ever going to be able to get a job? You know, is he going to be able to, I mean, even get married? Can he fill out a a basic form? You know, what happens to these kids? Is he going to end up on drugs or in jail? I mean, everything was going through my mind. I was terrified. And then I got very angry um, because I felt like they were the professionals. They were the experts and I trusted them and they let me down. You know, I, I read that this is, you know, super common one in five. How, how did they not know how? And so, um, I mean, I was calling the district office that summer. I mean, sobbing on people's voicemails, literally. I mean, I was so desperate. I can't even describe it. And I felt totally unequipped, you know. So that whole summer, I just went to the library and I read and I read every book I could get my hands on. And I went back with the game plan. And ultimately, my child is the first child, despite what they said, they used to tell me he was the only kid they've ever had with dyslexia, which we know is statistically impossible. But my child, as far as I know, is the first child to ever receive a multisensory structured literacy in my county. And then after I helped him, I knew that there were a lot of other parents in the same situation. So uh, I had met them kind of along the way, trying to network, trying to problem solve with other moms. And so I started helping other families. Thank you so much uh, for sharing so much there to, to unpack and kind of talk about. So I'll talk, let's talk about a couple of things before we, we move on to a different direction. But I, I really, uh, I, first of all, appreciate you sharing your journey and your story with us. That means so much because so many people can, I'm sure, identify with with what you went through one of the things I was 
curious about, if you don't mind speaking a little bit more about, because I get this question a good bit, which is people really struggle around. I'm sure it's not a surprise to you and your work. People really struggle around the piece of the assessment. And you said it took pretty much all year. And then it's the last day of school. And it's like, here you go. Good luck with that. We'll see you next fall. And so, you know, for, for families that say, well, you know, I asked the teacher and then nothing happened. Can you talk a little bit about that process as far as what you did for follow-ups and things of that nature that might, you know, help a family that's not sure what to do? Sure. So, you're supposed to just be able to ask the teacher, right? But there's no accountability in that. There's no proof. And um, kind of the golden rule of advocacy that I tell everyone is document, document, document. If it's not in writing, it didn't happen. And we see this all the time. You know, parents will say, I've asked the principal, I've asked the teacher, I've asked, you know, and then we get to the IEP table table eventually and nobody recalls that you know and it's it's hard to tell if it's you know an intentional untruth or they have hundreds of children and you know thousands of parents that they're dealing with so things get forgotten there's a lot on on these teachers plates and even the best intentioned people are imperfect so really if you want an evaluation put it in writing put it in writing, sign it, and then you can either email it to the principal of the, of the school or you can walk it into the office. I tell people if you give it to them in person that you want the whomever is in the front office to mark it received with the date and provide you a copy so you do have proof that you've submitted it. You can also send it, you know, certified mail if you like, but generally an email is, is sufficient. But putting, a, putting it in writing makes all the difference. Absolutely. It, it, you're so right there because it just seems like if, if things aren't in writing, it's so hard to, to prove later that it occurred. And then many times people's memories are what they are. And well, I think she did. I'm not sure she did. And so it just, it helps all parties. And it helps you as the parent too, to go back and reflect on, oh, well, that was, it feels like two weeks ago, but it was really two days ago. So it also you kind of with your own timeline as well as, as follow-ups and things. So thank you for that. Okay, so I want to I want to talk again a little bit more about the book. Uh, a couple of things. One is of that, you know, some of the books are very extensive. You know, some of them are very scientific. Some of them are yes. they're just huge, right? They're volumes almost, and it's hard to digest for a parent. And so I love that yours is very practical approach. I love that it's 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 not too long. It's just like the right amount of length as far as, you know, being able to get through the information and get through the chapters, but it has a little bit of a punch there, right? I mean, it is like, this is where you should go and this is the information you need. And I find that to be very helpful and insightful. One of the things though, for people that might not be aware of the terminology exceptional child or exceptional education, before we, we dive a little bit more into raising exceptional children, when you think of an exceptional child as, as it relates to your advocacy work in your book, how do you define an, an exceptional child so that way the audience kind of knows what we're talking about today? Sure. So exceptional children includes children with disabilities, but it also includes children with giftedness because children with giftedness also develop asynchronously sometimes, right, unevenly. And so they have a lot of the same challenges. So it's inclusive of, of 
both ends of the spectrum regarding learning and developing. Okay, thank you for that. One of the pieces that, that really spoke to me, I don't know how much you know about my background, but prior to going to law school, I was a, a school counselor. So I worked in elementary, middle and high school, and I taught some college psychology classes. So I really enjoyed many parts of your book. But one of the pieces that really spoke to me personally as a mom raising a child with dyslexia was your vision statement and your master plan. You know, sometimes I find that I think we have the assumption that we we drop our child off at the building and everything is taken care of. And so I love the idea of the vision statement. So let's start there a little bit. When, when you say as a family for your child, I don't know if you have individual vision statements for each of your three, or if you do that as a collective, can you speak a little bit about when, when you talk about a vision statement, uh, is that for a particular child? Is that for a family? And, and how would someone go about creating a vision statement? I'm sure I'm trying to find the section in my book. It's been a while so uh, to reference. I apologize. So it should be for the individual child. So I have three children. So you want to have one for each child. And well, oh, here we go. I'm so sorry. So, right. So ideally, when you're creating a vision statement, sometimes parents have different ideas about their children's lives than the children have. And if they're capable of adding their input, they really should. You know, my son wants to be an electrical engineer. And actually, this is, I use my son as an example, um, Tanner. So that's, that's how we start his plan off, which with what, what are your aspirations? Of course, you want it to be practical, but you want them to aim high as well. But just a brief conversation really is all you need with your child. Consider their strengths and weaknesses, right? Maybe they don't have a, a specific end in mind, right? They just know that they like math and they like building things. And so you might have to guide them into what type of careers will work with those strengths. But just a conversation with your child is all you need to do. You don't have to do any special inventories or anything like that. And it should be like everything in life, a a living document that changes over time as your child, you know, strengths Um, or weaknesses change. And I love the part of, you know, you talk, uh, I noticed a a bit about the vision statement, like you were saying, just that, you know, where is it aspirationally the child wants to go that you want to help them achieve, you know, their, their larger goals. And like you said, for some, they may not know for exactly, but they may have an idea of where their strengths are, what they're interested in. And then the piece that I really like about then kind of developing that master plan to go along with it, like how do we how do we set some shorter term goals as we look for that longer term goal, which might be, you know, a, a career tech or it might be college or it might be, you know, a specific job or whatever it might be. I love the piece where you talk about uh, smarter steps and I think, again, kind of channeling my my former job as a school counselor, I was very passionate about helping students and families, and I was very passionate about goal setting. And so I really like, you know, we talked a lot in schools about SMART goals, that they're specific and measurable. But I love that you talk about SMART goals because you talk about 
and, and I'll just read this real quick, specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, time bound, evaluate and readjust. And, and why it seems like to me it's so important for our families we're working with is that evaluate and readjust. Because one of the things I was curious about is, you know, we, we do have these great high expectations that we want for our children. So how do we reconcile that with what is attainable? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And look, I'm a firm believer in, you know, you shoot for the stars and maybe you end up on the moon. Right. Um, I don't, (laughs) I want everybody to aspire to be, you know, I don't care if it's a big dream, you know, let's, let's go for it. But at some point it's not feasible. I, I was once attending college. I wanted to be a pharmacist. Yeah. I was going to CSU here in Columbus and I was making really good grades, but I took chemistry in May semester and I was studying my behind off and my daughter came home one day and she's like, Oh, you're studying again, you know? And I, and I had to sit down and think about it. I, my, the closest pharmacy school is Auburn you know, it's a very competitive program. So you don't just have to do your two years pre-farm. You actually have to have a BS in chemistry first. And then I'm going to commute for another four years. Is this really feasible being that I'm already married with three children, you know? And, And I had to, I had to, you know, I had to really evaluate my situation and say, is this, is this fair for, for my children? Is this a reasonable expectation for myself considering? And am I willing to sacrifice everything that I'm doing for this one end? And for me in that time, I decided that it, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't worth it. You know, I, I changed my major so I could stay here locally and not commute. And so things happen in life, you know, aspirations change. We, we, sometimes fail to meet our goals, regardless of how much effort we put in, especially when you're dealing with disabilities, right? There's some, some certain things that we can remediate to the cows come home, but it's just a neurobiological difference that it doesn't matter what we do. We're still going to struggle with certain things. That's just the facts of life sometimes. And so we might have to say, okay, Given everything that we know now, we've had, you know, for example, my son, he's been working um, with Barton for about four years now, and he couldn't read but 30 words when when he started. Um, He couldn't recognize all the letters of his own name. Now he can read some really big words, right? So maybe some visions look more feasible, but he still responds restricted and that his fluency, his speed, really fluency is not the right word, but his rate is still very slow because he has profound dyslexia. So if he wanted to do something like law school, you know, listening to um, books on audio, the spoken word is one third the speed of eye reading. So if they assign five hours a night reading in law school, and he's going to listen to it on audio, that's like 15 hours, right? So we either, we might need to readjust his goal or we need to set a new one that says, okay, he needs to start speeding up his audio so that he can, you know, meet the expectations of law school. Does that make sense? So you always have to see where you're at now 
and, and make a decision about what, what you're going to do. You, you have to meet the challenges as they arise. Mm-hmm. And and I would think too, going back to what you said a few minutes ago about, you know, checking in with your child, you know, I I think about that too, in in the context of what you just said, because, you know, of course it's, um, we have plans as far as, you know, wanting to help our our children to be successful, but also it seems like in the, in the culture and the society we live in, there's so much high expectations that end up being Mm -hmm. stressful for, for students and learners and just overwhelming for our children. So I think like you were saying, it, it makes perfect sense that if you, if you take a step back and really have conversations with your child, as far as what is it you're interested in, and then what is the reality of us getting there? And is it that we need to work on increasing, you know, the the amount of exposure to certain classes that you have, or, you know, I I guess my point is, is that, you know, it's so, I think it's easy to fall in the trap of this is, this is what you're going to do. And this is what your Mm -hmm. future entails. And, you know, I just want to encourage moms to really take a step back and and listen and engage their child. And and it's okay to, like you were saying, it's okay to adjust. You know, right now my daughter says that she wants to be a chemist. I don't know. She's nine, right? Like she's very passionate about it, but also I'm open to other pieces as she's very entrepreneurial and she has just lots of other interests that she has. And so we're exploring all of those. So I think it's important for us to be, I guess, kind of an open mind as a parent as well, to be thinking about how do we best support what what they are, you know, aspiring to and what their interests are? Because what I don't want to see happen is, you know, I worked with so many students where they were just frustrated and overwhelmed and, you know, had had, you know, really almost mental health concerns because things were so stressful and, and, and they weren't able to communicate with their family to say, I'm not even interested in that. And that's, I don't want to spend the next, you know, eight years in school or whatever it may be, or maybe I'm not interested in going into the family business. So I appreciate that that you're having those conversations throughout your book as well as to, you know, to remind people that that not only the vision statement, but as, as far as having that plan of where do we go next? And it could be, I mean, you gave an example in your book. It could be just as simple as, your child reads on a first grade level and they're in fourth grade and you would love to figure out how do I get them reading on grade level? And I think you had kind of like a tiered approach. It might not be that you can catch up three or four years in one year. Really, it depends on, you know, your individual child and how severe their dyslexia is. So I loved in the book how you kind of tiered it out for them. You know, maybe year one, it's, you know, maybe they're reading on second grade level, you know, maybe, you know, and so you, you kind of help them see an example. And so it could be that your plan, your master plan is just that right now. It doesn't have to always be career minded. I think eventually you get there though. Right. And and that's how I write IEP goals too. If, if I know, you know, um, in Georgia, you need to be 1250 Alexile to be college and career ready. Um, we can literally, you know, take where you're at, um, subtract that from where you want to be, and then divide the difference over the years to say, okay, what is the bare minimum we have to achieve to get to get them where they need to be? And so, um, the math just makes it easy for me. It makes it uh, make sense. Yeah, that it's less subject uh, subjective, right? And so it gives them those shorter term goals and more. Mm-hmm. objective basis too to see if they're they're hitting those goals and if that's attainable that makes sense absolutely uh, part of part of the the piece you kind of move into next is 
you know, as we, as we think about these pieces of, of raising these amazing children, you know, how do we set our child up as well to have two different, I guess, thoughts is, you know, how do we set their mindset up to be, uh, you hear the term growth mindset and fixed mindset. So, you know, how important do you believe it is for us to be working on the mindset with our children? I mean, what are your thoughts around mindset? For me, I think it's huge. Um, You know, not only is my son dyslexic, but probably the bulk of my clients are as well. And confidence, self-esteem, where it goes, almost everything else follows. And so, and, and, and unfortunately, a lot of times when your children have struggled, especially for an extended period of time, because a lot of these kids are not being identified, second, third, fourth, fifth grade and beyond, they develop this negative inner dialogue. They feel they're stupid. I mean, these are the words that they say to themselves. And so I think it's really, really important that they know that this is not fixed. This is not, you know, your struggle right now is not how it's always going to be. It doesn't mean that you're dumb Maybe you don't have all the information or the skills you want to have, but you can obtain them through hard work. This is the number one discussion I have with my son. Tenacity and work ethic will get you basically anywhere, regardless of your limitations. I mean, with very, very few example, uh, exceptions. Huge. Right. And, 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 you know, another piece that comes up, I think, too, going right along with that is really encouraging our children that because I believe this in myself, I always I tell my my supervisors, you know, whoever that might be, you know, I believe I'm a life lifetime learner. Like I'm always learning. I'm always exploring. And I think, you know, as we as we think about how to best help our children, too. Yeah, it's these years are hard. I mean, there's no if ands or buts around that. These are very difficult academic years for our children. But I think if we can explore and have a larger conversation about learning and maybe it's learning how to, uh, I don't know, have have the best technique for soccer or maybe it's that I'm learning you know, um, how to sew, or maybe I'm learning, you know, how to start a business, whatever it might be. Those are all pieces of learning. They might look different, but, you know, one of the things that I hope with, with our daughter is that, you know, to get her to, to see that spark and want to learn more in those areas. Uh, we know reading is going to always be difficult probably for her because she's pretty severe, but, I also know that there are ways to to remediate her and to work around that and to accommodate those pieces as well. So do, I'm sure you have conversations with with your son as well as far as you know trying trying to uh, trying to explain because I don't think students always understand or our children don't always understand that act, learning doesn't happen only in the classroom. Right, right. You know, I, I feel I'm the same way. I'm a lifelong learner. My mother was the same way. It's something I love, which is why reading was, I was so upset about his his struggles with reading, right? Because that's how I learn. I learn by reading. And so I felt as though at the time, if he couldn't read, he couldn't learn. And that's the devastating thing, really. As far as learning outside the classroom, yes, it does have to occur everywhere. And the children have to know that, that learning is not limited to academics and that 
you know, I'm also very honest with my children about my struggles in school. I still don't know all my multiplication facts, quite honestly. So I think it's important that they know that others struggle as well and it's not limited to them, you know? Yeah, that's a great example, too, because I, we, I, you know, when we first told our daughter that she was, you know, identified with dyslexia in first grade. And so that was I think I built it up more in my head about having the conversation because when we had the conversation, it was very different than I imagined. She was very like, okay, and this makes sense. And now what do I do next? And it was just really an amazing conversation that I was not expecting. But I also think about, you know, having those conversations around, you know, how, how do they, well, one of the pieces was when I was explaining it to her, was that everybody has strengths and everybody has things that they need to work on or weaknesses. I, you know, I try not to use the word weakness a lot, although it's, it's, you know, obviously a very common word, but I try to talk about, you know, where are there places that we, we might need to make improvements or, or do things differently or learn a different skill. And so I tried to, you know, give practical examples. We were able to have a conversation using people that she knows in her life that are important to her to say, you know, although everyone's different, but we have different strengths. And so you can go to each person for different things to help you learn different pieces of just life. And and I think that's so important for them to see kind of a broader picture. Yes, you're struggling academically, but I guess the point I wanted to make or, or ask you about is, you know, really bringing it back to we all have that. Like you said, math, like I cringe when you said multiplication facts, because mm-hmm. hello, my hand was raised over here because I, it's just like, oh my goodness. It's just, it is, we just all have them. Right. And I think it's important for our children to understand that we are all human and we all have strengths and we all have weaknesses or things that we need to improve on. Or when we have to do those things, we have to work that much harder. Mm-hmm. Um, when I went to law school, uh, it was, I had just turned 30. I didn't have any children at the time. I thought, well, if I don't go now, I'll never go. And I had to study seven days a week seven days a week. And I would have to reread things because I would get halfway. And if anybody's ever read a case, you get halfway through and I was like, Oh my goodness. I don't know what that just said. (laughs) And my whole background had been in education. It had not been in contracts or criminal law and all those things that I had to learn that first year, but I made it, but it was difficult. Right. And so I think it's important for our kids to see we're human and that we struggle. But uh, I also think it's, just this part of life, but I think it's important to also, um, you know, validate that for our children that we're, we're not perfect. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because they do, but with their struggles, they do, they tend to internalize and think this is, this is a me issue, right? I'm the only one going through this. Um, and they have, can really have this very ugly inner dialogue that is just, I mean, it would be heartbreaking if they say it out loud and, and some do. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, kind of the, the term we're talking about really is uh, multiple intelligences. And um, I love that. And I talk to my son about it um, as well. It's so important. So important. Absolutely. Thank you for listening today. What a great conversation with Marianne. And you know what? She's going to be back real soon to talk all about special education advocacy. You're not going to want to miss this one. So be sure to subscribe to the podcast where you're listening today. So just pop over right now and subscribe. And that way, the day that I release that, you know what? It's going to pop right up in your library and you'll be able to listen to it. So who's ready to win a book? I have a copy of the book and it is so good. And after our conversation today, hopefully it sparked your interest as well. 
So I know you're going to enjoy your copy of the book. So how do you go about registering to win a copy? What you're going to do is you're going to send me an email at Nicole, and that's spelled N-I-C-O-L-E, at dyslexiamomlife.com. It's all together, no spaces. So it's Nicole at dyslexiamomlife.com. And in the subject line, what I want you to put is free book. How simple is that, right? So you're going to email me, Nicole, at dyslexiamomlife.com with the subject line, free book. And that'll register you to win a copy of Mary Ann's book, Raising Exceptional Children, A Guide to Understanding Learning Differences and Empowering Your Child. Registration will be open all week. So whenever you listen to this podcast, it'll be available, except if you listen to it late. So if you listen to it for the during that first week it's released, registration for the free books ends on Friday, October 30th. And we will be randomly choosing the winners and sending out emails on Saturday, October 31st. So we're going to choose four winners. Who knows? Maybe a few more. And we will be sending everyone that registers an email to let you know who won the free copies. I'm so excited to get this book in your hands. And I so appreciate Mary Ann for giving us this opportunity. So what are you waiting for? Go subscribe and send me your email. You got this. Go have a fantastic week. And I'll be right back here next Monday to provide more great guests and great conversations. Take care. Talk to you soon.